0: All right, y'all come on in and grab a seat. We've got coffee and joy and fellowship. Okay, today we are beginning a brand new topic in our theological equipping class, which will take us through the end of this semester, and it is the doctrine of the church. I don't know if you've been with us recently, but for like the last year year and a half we've been talking about salvation we've talked about everything from election to growing in holiness to what happens when you die the entire christian life and the process of salvation today though we're going to start talking about Christ's bride the church and uh... today's just an introduction next week jeff is going to be talking about what is the church today is an introduction into what is known as uh... ecclesiology and so uh, we'll begin with that word so you will hear us refer to the doctrine of the church as ecclesiology. Sometimes you'll hear the phrase ecclesiastical. Uh, The Old Testament book, Ecclesiastes, is uh, not its original Hebrew title. The Hebrew title of it is Koheleth, which means preacher, because it's this guy who's giving wisdom about life and these kind of things. Uh, But its Latin title is Ecclesiastes, because it is wisdom for the ecclesia, for the church. And so anything that has this kind of root, this uh, ecclesia, ecclesiastical, ecclesiastes, ecclesiastical authority, anything that sounds like that all goes back to the same word and it is the greek word ekklesia that's what it looks like in uh, in uh, minuscule writing in greek and then that is the transliteration into uh, into english uh, and ekklesia is simply a group it's simply a, a, an assembly or a congregation so when the senate would gather in uh, rome that is an ekklesia or when uh, some sort of special interest group gathers that is an ekklesia and so in the same way when the church gathers that is an ekklesia as well uh, our english word church is actually related to a German word, kirka, uh, which is linked to the uh, Greek word kurios, uh, which is uh, Lord. And so the idea is that the church is the gathering place where people come to worship the Lord, the Lord's house, that kind of idea, not being the building that you meet in. This is not God's house. We have a very nice facility, but God does not reside in McKinney uh, alone or something like that. He is everywhere. The, the heavens, even the highest heavens cannot contain Him, uh, the Bible will say, but it is the people of God that are God's house where God dwells Uh, And so, uh, anyway, that's what we'll be talking about today. We're going to do an introduction to ecclesiology. Now, uh, let's start with the way the word church can be used, because the way the word church can be used is myriad. There are so many different ways that we can use the word church. I've included 14 different ways that we can use the word church, but there are even more than that. And so I want to just go over some of these ways. I I, I mainly want you to realize that this term is very ambiguous, and Christians fight fight each other talking about the church, but they don't stop to define what they mean by the church. And so I'll give you 14 different (laughs) definitions of the church, uh, and then uh, at the end I'll give you the ones you really need to pay attention to, okay? Sometimes when you use the word church, it can mean all Christians. It just means Christians generally, okay? That's sometimes known in theology as the universal church. So if I say Jesus died for the church, what I mean is he died for all Christians, all people who know and love him, not just one congregation, but Christians generally, okay? Uh, The word church can refer to a local group of Christians who regularly gather together. This, instead of the universal church, is called the local church. So if we talk, for example, about the people of the Parkway Church, we are a local instantiation, a local uh, embodiment uh, of the church, which is a bigger universal reality, Sometimes when we use the word church, we mean all Christians who've already died. This is in theology known as the church triumphant. So if I say something like the church that is in heaven, what I'm meaning are Christians who have already died. They've already been successful. That's why it's called the church triumphant. They've already, they've already won. They've already made it. They've already arrived, Okay. Other times, the word church can refer to all Christians who are still alive on earth. This is what's called in theology the church militant. Why? Because we are still fighting. We are fighting against sin. We are fighting against the devil. We are fighting against false doctrine. And so we are like a military uh, fighting against what is evil. So, for example, if I were to say the church must remain faithful, I can't mean Christians who've already died. They've remained faithful. I mean those of us down here still fighting the good fight, okay? Number five. Sometimes the word church can mean true Christians who are really elect and regenerate. This is what's known as the invisible church, okay? When you walk into a church building, some of those people will be saved that you see, and some of those people will not be saved. And we don't always know exactly who that is, but God does, and that is what is known as the uh, invisible church. So if I say the church is the bride of Christ, I don't mean all people who go into a church building. I mean those who personally know and love Jesus, okay? Okay? I can say, uh, use the word church to refer to those who attend the church gathering but may not really be saved, okay? This is what's known as the visible church. The visible church uh, is just everybody you see. As you look around right now, you see the visible church. I think most of you in here are saved, but there might be one who's not, and I won't tell you who I think that person is, okay? If I were to say, for example, there are a lot of wolves in the church, I I can't mean that there are a lot of wolves in the true people of God because those people are regenerate. They're not wolves. What I mean is in the church as we see it with our naked eyes. Okay, The word church can refer to a group of Christians that attend different assemblies, different churches within the same city. So when the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Rome, he's probably not talking about just one gathering. He's probably talking about Christians that gather in several different ecclesiae and several different assemblies or different churches all in one city, okay? So sometimes the word church, doesn't just mean assembly, it can refer to multiple assemblies. Number eight, sometimes the word church just means any generic assembly. We practice corporate singing in the church. When we actually gather, that's an assembly. But the word church can refer to, like I said, uh, groups that meet for any purpose, political or otherwise. Sometimes the word church refers to the official, corporate, weekly gathering of local, the local church for the purposes of worship, preaching, partaking in the ordin- ordinances, etc., okay? So if I were to say, welcome to our church service today, that's what that would mean. When two Christians get together and go watch a movie, that is not church, Just because, even though there is a plurality of Christians there okay? Sometimes we have to define church by the actual worship gathering, the once a week, getting together, worshiping together, being a family, assembly, and so that is sometimes how the word church is used. Sometimes the word church is used as an historical institution. So if I say, for example, kings in the Middle Ages were forced to submit to the church, there I'm referring to the church as like this big entity, this uh, organization that has authority and, and rule. Sometimes the word church is a general way of referring to religion in uh, our common parlance. So if I say the separation of church and state, you don't say, what church? That doesn't make sense. What I mean there is something like religion, the separation of religion and state. Specifically in the original context, uh, the idea was to forbid the state from having an official state church, like the Church of England or the Lutheran Church in Germany or something like that. Sometimes we use the word church to refer to church leadership. So if we say, talk to your local church about getting counseling, that doesn't mean on a Sunday morning you get up on stage and you're like, my marriage is on fire. That's not what we mean. We mean go talk to the church leaders to, uh, to get help with your marriage or whatever it might be, okay? There was a popular phrase in the uh, Middle Ages uh, which referred to this. It was, ubi papa ibi ecclesia, where the pope is, there is the church. It was the idea of referring to the church as church leadership. Sometimes by the word church, we mean church membership. So if we say something like this, we don't allow lost people into the church. That doesn't mean we don't allow them into our church building. We allow them to come to to services. We allow them to come and sit amongst the congregation, but we don't allow them to become members if they're not Christians because we mean something different by church membership. Sometimes we use the word church as a building where Christians assemble when we say, I'll meet you at the church, okay? Now, just to be clear, some of the ways that I'm defining church here is just how they're used in culture the Bible doesn't use the word church in all these different ways, okay? In fact, the Bible never refers to a building as a church, ever, throughout the entire New Testament, is never referred to as a building. So this is not the church, this is the church, right? The church is the people of God. But I say this to start off just to say that, that the word church can mean many, 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 many different things, and so you have to stop and you have to define your terms, okay? The most common logical fallacy, the most common logical mistake is what is known as an equivocation. It's where you're using the same word and you have a completely different meaning okay, than the person you're talking to, and that happens all the time with the church. Now, many people don't think that ecclesiology is very important, right? Because comparatively speaking, we've talked about the Trinity, we've talked about the eternality and divinity of Jesus, we've talked about uh, salvation, we've talked about election, we've talked about all these big topics, and so the church might seem like something that's not quite as important. So I want to give you a great little quote, which is this. Ecclesiology is like stretching, you don't think about it much until something tears, okay? The idea is this in and of itself is not as important of a doctrine as others, but it affects everything else. You can have a church that is solid and preaching the gospel and doing all these things, but if you don't have a proper ecclesiology, that church can dissolve, that church can split, that church can drift into heresy. So church, uh, the, the doctrine of the church is very important. Not to mention Jesus loves his bride okay? That's super important. If you say you're my friend and you love me and you are super mean to Katie, my wife, and you don't care about her, you and I are not cool. It's the same way with Christ. If you hate his bride and you're mean to his girl, he does not like that, okay? And so you need to understand that Christ loves his church and so we should love his church as well. You cannot be faithful to Christ if you don't love the church, okay? Let me give you a great quote from church history and then I'll give you a quote from Galatians. St. Cyprian, this is a guy who makes a quote that will be quoted in Catholicism and then the Reformers actually all quote Cyprian on this as well. He can no longer have God for his father who has not the church for his mother. If anyone could escape who is outside the Ark of Noah, then he may also escape who shall be outside of the church. Okay? Now I don't mean that in the Roman Catholic sense. I'm not saying that uh, in addition to Christ and his justifying work, you have to do something else in the church to be saved. That's not what I'm saying. And that's not what the reformers meant by quoting Cyprian. What they mean is there is no saying, I will be a part of Christ, but not a part of Christ. There is no saying, I'll be a part of Christ, but not his bride. Jesus died for his bride. If you're not part of the bride, you don't belong to Christ. You don't get to separate uh, your belonging to Christ from belonging to his bride. This is where the pendulum has swung a little bit. So in Roman Catholicism, the church is lifted up too highly, and so we as Protestants have a tendency to swing the pendulum too far the other way and kind of act like the church is just voluntary. It's just kind of something that we can decide to do or not to do. The Bible won't let you do that. Galatians, so, so, so some of this language might sound weird calling the church our mother, but that idea actually comes from the book of Galatians. Galatians 4:25 through 26, and then verse 31. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our, quote, mother. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. The Bible's going to say that uh, we are children of the church, if you want to say it that way, okay? Now, here are the questions that we're going to deal with in ecclesiology as we go through the series that will lead us in through uh, June, and then we will take our break in July, and then when we come back next semester, we're probably going to do end-timesy stuff. Ooh, so get ready for that. Get ready for that. Go buy your Israeli flags and your pictures of burning tanks and stuff and bring it up here. It'll be great. Okay. Questions we deal with in ecclesiology. What is the church? What do we mean by that? I've given you 14 different, different definitions. What does the New Testament typically mean when it says the church? Did the church start with the Old Testament believers or at Pentecost in the New Testament? Okay, that's a great question. When did the church start? Is the church a New Testament idea or is it a continuation of an Old Testament idea of the people of God? Should church membership be made up of Christians and non-Christians as Christians? Our Methodist or Lutheran or Presbyterian brothers and sisters would do, uh, or only regenerate believers. That's actually something that is unique to uh, a Baptist church and a lot of uh, churches that are charismatic, non denominational, whatever, that practice believers' baptism. Uh, they would say that it should only be made up of regenerate believers. What is baptism? How should it be done and to whom? What is communion? How should it be done and what does it mean? How should a church be organized? Believe it or not, the Bible gives us some pretty specific things on how a church should be organized and how it should be run. Who holds authority in the local church? Okay. Who has the right to make decisions, to make calls on things, to guide? We'll talk about those kind of things. What is church discipline and how should it be practiced? What should worship services look like? What are the marks of a healthy church? Why are there so many denominations? What does the church do? Should churches be officially involved in government or should you have a separation of church and state? We're going to talk about how Christians should be involved in politics, what we should and should not do in politics. Is the church an official institution or is it any group who holds to correct doctrine and many more? So this is just to, uh, I always say wet your whistle, that's not the right phrase, to wet your appetite, that's the phrase. This is to wet your appetite for what's coming, we're going to be talking about church and all things church and baptism and communion and what is a true church and what is not a true church, etc. okay? Now what I want to do is uh, I want to give you a snapshot of what the church has looked like throughout church history, okay? So this is not primarily a church history course, we eventually might might… Teach on church history in some future semester down the line, but I want to give you a snapshot of what the church looks like throughout church history. Before I do, I need to say a few things here. You need to understand that Christ's church has always existed. Christ promises that the gates of Hades will not overcome his church, and so his church has never been overcome. There are times the church has been more or less pure. There are definitely times in the high Middle Ages where there's a lot of corruption in the church, but that doesn't mean there's no true believers. That doesn't mean there are no people that love God and believe in the Trinity and trust in grace and these kind of things. So you need, to be, you need to understand Christ's church has always existed. There are times it's more or less pure, but there is no new church starting, okay? A new church or a new type of Christianity is just a recycled heresy. Schism is sin. Christ has one bride. There's one faith, one hope, one baptism. You better be linked to that. Okay? You don't get to make up something new and call yourself a Christian. If I step up and I say I'm a Democrat and I don't hold anything Democrats have traditionally held, or I step up and I say I'm a Republican and I don't hold anything Republicans have traditionally held, you'll have to say to me, Zach, you don't get to determine these titles. They're already determined for you. It's the same way in Christianity. You don't get to step up and say, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in the Trinity. I'm a Christian, but I don't believe salvation is by faith alone. I'm a, whatever it is, you don't get to do that. You have to put yourself within the stream of church history. And so it's important that you understand this idea. Okay, let me give you a snapshot of the church. Here's a great quote from a church historian, a guy named Greg Allison. Here's what he says. He's asking the question, what does the church do? And this is a great illustration. Here's what the church does. The worship of God through singing hymns along with verbal and bodily expressions of praise. The reading and preaching of the word of God. The, celebrations, the celebration of the sacraments or ordinances. Intercession for members and others uh, who are in need evangelistic appeals to believe in the gospel, financial giving, missionary zeal and engagement, pastoral leadership, members serving one another through a variety of ministries, the exercise of church discipline, works of mercy among the poor and marginalized, and so forth. It is not too simplistic nor naive to say that the earliest churches and those of the 21st century share some remarkable similarities. That is in a great little paragraph, a great little snapshot, the purpose of the church. Okay, I won't get into this too much because Jeff will be talking more about these kind of things uh, next week. But I wanna give you a snapshot of what the church looks like. So the church, church history is typically divided into four eras. The early church, the medieval church, the Reformation, and the modern church. And I'm gonna let you know what church services and stuff were like in each of these just so that you start to, I want you to know your family tree. I want you to see that you are linked to a bigger thing than just yourself, than just Parkway, than just McKinney, that there have been a lot of people before you that have loved Christ and followed him faithfully. So let's talk about what church would have been like in the early church. So imagine that you were a Christian maybe in the the first or second century, the very early church, and so let me give you some things about this. First of all, services in the early church were in the vernacular, meaning they were in a language you could understand. A lot of churches right after the time of Acts spoke Greek. That was the common language of the uh, Roman Empire at that time in addition to Latin, and so a lot of services were in the vernacular, meaning you could understand them. The early church started off by saying, we should be able to preach, and people should understand what we're saying. Also helpful for today. You didn't, in the early church, typically have a full New Testament. Typically what you might have is you might have a one or two or three or a few New Testament letters that would be circled, that, that would be passed around, that, that would kind of travel in a circle. So someone would write a passage, Paul would write a letter and send it to a church, they would make a copy, then send it to another church, they would make a copy and send it to another church, but you didn't have a full New Testament, okay? This is one of the reasons it was so important in the early church that you have, as uh, the Bible will talk about, prophets and evangelists and these kind of things, you have these church leaders that God is supernaturally uh, empowered as the uh, New Testament is being written, okay? Now, the churches typically were forced to meet secretly due to persecution. So if the Romans are trying to kill you, you don't put First Baptist Rome up on your building in neon lights, okay? Or, you know, First Methodist whatever. You are meeting a lot of times secretly. You're typically meeting in somebody's home Uh, When the church gets persecuted, they literally go underground, they worship in catacombs and all these kind of things, and so that's going on in the early church. Churches were extremely small, it was something that you knew everybody by name. We actually have early lists of membership roles from the early church, okay? So in addition to the idea that the Bible assumes that you know who's among you, we actually have uh, early membership roles that we have discovered of the early church. After the death of the apostles, the role of bishop started to become more pronounced, okay? So here's what you have in the New Testament. Paul or whoever that that founds a church will elect and help select uh, and have the people help select the leaders of the church, okay? These are known as elders slash pastors. Those are different words, but that's the same office. What slowly starts to happen in the early church is you start to get certain guys who are over entire regions, who are over entire cities, who are over multiple churches And that is what is known as a bishop. We'll talk more about that when we get into uh, church government, but just want you to know that that office starts to really grow in the early church, this idea of a bishop, okay? Churches, the early church, was typically made up of the socially outcast. Now think about that, okay? The kind of people Jesus selects with the disciples are guys who are losers. He does. God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. If I'm going to try to change the world with the gospel, I'm gonna get guys from like Harvard Business School and who went to Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship and I'm gonna get the best and the brightest and I'm gonna change the world through sheer human might. Well, that's not what Christ does. What Christ does is he chooses the people no one else would choose. He uses the foolish things of the world to, uh, to shame, the, uh, shame the wise. And so li- listen to this quote. This quote comes from a uh, philosopher who was not a Christian. He hated Christians. His name is Kelsus. He was in the second century. Listen to what he says about the makeup of Christianity. Far from us, say the Christians. Be any man possessed of any culture or wisdom or judgment. Their aim is to convince only worthless and contemptible people, idiots, slaves, poor women and children. These are the only ones whom they manage to turn into believers. Okay. Now, what he is meaning as an insult, biblically, is actually a compliment. The more that God uses the marginalized, the more that God uses those who are not great, the greater God's glory. You understand that? So, if I'm a really good surgeon. And I can remove a scalpel, or I'm sorry, I can remove a tumor with a scalpel. That takes a lot of skill. But let's say you give me not a very good tool. Let's say you give me a stick of gum, and I can remove that tumor that way. Then I'm a really good surgeon, right? That's the idea with God. God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise because it gives him glory. Yes, he equips us. Yes, there are smart people in church history, but that's not why God chooses them. God equips them with talents, but he uses the weak things of the world so he might get more glory, okay? The services focused on a few things in the early church, singing, scripture reading, teaching and preaching, praying and partaking of communion. Now look at me, those are the exact same things we do here at Parkway, and we do that intentionally. We do that because Acts 2.42 says this is what the early church did, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles are dead, but we have their writings in the New Testament. That's why we teach the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship where we hang out, we love one another, we have community groups, we greet one another before and after services, to the breaking of bread, that's a reference to communion, and to the prayers. You'll see us pray several times throughout the service, we partake of communion together, we're just trying to do what the early church did in the book of Acts, okay? Now, there was a huge focus in the early church on holy living and helping those in need. The emperor Julian, the Roman emperor, when he is writing describing Christians, here's an excerpt from that where he talks about their righteousness. He says this, the Christian faith has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. One of the things early Christians would do is go help bury people's dead when they just left them out to rot because, humans, or because Christians believe that the human body is valuable and so uh, re- burial is a sign of resurrection. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar, and that the godless Galileans, that's a reference to Christians, care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. Okay? So Julian hates Christians. He calls them godless, and he's saying, they're still really great. They're out there helping people, taking care of the poor, burying the dead. They're they're the worst. I want to kill them, but also they're really nice and great. Okay? Early Christians were persecuted a lot, okay? So you need to understand that early Christianity, Christianity was not a legal religion yet, a religio licita until after Constantine, and so uh, Christians were persecuted. They were boiled alive, some of them sawn in two, burned at the stake, crucified, fed to the lions in the Colosseum. And the Circus Maximus, which was kind of like the NASCAR track of the, uh, the Roman Empire, uh, they would tie Christians to the chariot wheels so that they would be crushed during those races. Uh, Emperor Nero would burn them alive with fire, etc. Okay, now there's a few reasons why Christians were persecuted by the Roman Empire. One, their righteous behavior made them stand out as different, okay? Jesus says that, that people will hate you because of your righteousness. When people see righteousness, that's given to you by Christ in the gospel, it makes them feel bad and makes them feel convicted. And instead of turning and repenting, what they do is they will get mad at you and that's part of the reason Christians are persecuted. Next, now this one's interesting, Christians only worshiped one God. We are not polytheists, okay? We are monotheists, there is only one God, okay? This is one of the reasons why we believe that God is a trinity, there cannot be, so, so I'm a dad and I have a son, Judah, but if I ask you how many humans are there, the answer is two. There's the Father, and there's the Son, and there's the Spirit, and if you ask how many gods are there, the answer is still just one, okay? So God is a trinity, we are strongly monotheist, but if you're in Rome, who is a polytheistic society where they're worshiping all kinds of deities, you're denying like a hundred different gods, and so they called early Christians atheists, isn't that great? Because they only worship one God instead of this whole pantheon of God. So, I mean, if you only worship one and there's another hundred you're neglecting, think about how mad those guys are, Right? You're just neglecting them all the time, and so Rome, the Romans hated Christians because they denied every god but one, and so they called them uh, atheists, which is a, uh, a great title. So go ahead and get a shirt that says atheist on it and just confuse everybody when you wear it. They're like, wait, I thought you went to Parkway. Okay. They wouldn't offer sacrifices to the emperor. That's one of the reasons they were persecuted. So one of the things that you had to do as a sign of your allegiance to Rome is you had to take a grain offering. You could offer a bigger offering if you wanted to, but you had to take a grain offering, and you had to cry out, Curious Caesar. Okay? Caesar is Lord, and you had to offer that as a, a, a pledge of allegiance to, uh, to Caesar. But more than that, you're not just saying, I'll be a Roman citizen, you're saying that he's Lord, and the early Christians wouldn't do that. They said, well, we can't say that Caesar is Lord, because if it's the case that Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. Yes, he's Lord in a lowercase l sense, but that's not what you're asking me to do. You're asking me to offer a sacrifice. You're offering me to, to, to partake in a little bit of worship... To the emperor, because people back then would worship the emperor. You have this emperor cult that's going on. And so Christians wouldn't do that, so they were seen as seditious. They were seen as uh, not very political. They were seen as uh, not patriotic, okay? And so that's one of the reasons they were persecuted. And then lastly, there was a lot of confusion around the practices of Christianity, okay? So when Christians would gather together to partake of communion, they'd have a big meal, and they called it an agape. What does the word agape mean? Love. Love, right, okay? So it was called the love feast, Because Christians love one another, we're a family, we would get together and we would eat together, and that was called the agape. But what Rome, uh, there was a rumor that kind of spread around that by using the word love, we were actually partaking in some type of sexual immorality, some sort of drunken party uh, with one another, and so so it put a stain on uh, early Christians. That's not what they were doing, but that's what they were accused of doing. If you're a Roman and you say, all these gross Christians are getting together for a love feast, that's kind of the idea that was going on. Additionally, there was a misunderstanding of communion. Christians were accused of cannibalism. Eating Jesus' body and drinking blood. Stay away from these Christians. They eat body and they drink blood. Ugh, gross. Stay away from them. So there was a misunderstanding of what communion was, and it led to a lot of Christians being killed, okay? Now let's transition to the medieval church. So this is post-500 AD. The medieval Catholic church was the most powerful institution in the world. And when I say Catholic church, I just mean Christian, Okay? There is no other branch of Christianity until at least 1054 with the Greek Orthodox Church. And so uh, when I say Catholic or Christian for the medieval church, those are the same thing. The medieval Catholic church was the most powerful institution in the world. They could make kings submit to them. They could raise their own armies and go to war. They could do what's known as an interdiction. Okay, what is that? Okay. In church discipline, what we do is we remove somebody from fellowship, we disfellowship with them, we excommunicate them, and we put them outside of the loving bonds of Jesus' fold, okay? That's what we do. What if you were able to do that to an entire nation? The pope could do it. It was called an interdiction. He would say, the king of France is not listening to me? Fine, I forbid any priest in France from ministering to people, so the whole country can just go to hell. That's what he's doing, okay? That is a lot of power that is beyond Kim Kardashian, that is beyond Kanye West, that is beyond Lady Gaga, that is beyond Vladimir Putin. That's a lot of power, okay? When you can send countries to hell, you're like the Death Star, okay? And so that's what's going on in, uh, in the Middle Ages, okay? Now, the church and state also were not separate. There was not this idea of separation of church and state. Now, that's common to us today. We think, yeah, separation of church and state. Is that really what you want, by the way? You don't want Christian principles imposed upon a nation for the flourishing of the nation. We'll talk about that later. Just something to wrestle through. But the, the church and state were not separate at this time. Pope Boniface the Eighth had a crown that he wore that had 48 rubies, 72 sapphires, 45 emeralds, and 66 large pearls. It also had two gold rows showing that he is in charge of both the church and the state. Okay? So you cannot fathom the power of the Roman Catholic Church, the most powerful institution maybe in world history, and then you can imagine what it's like to be Martin Luther, one little German monk trying to go up against that, okay? <clears throat> if you were wealthy in the Middle Ages, how many times do you think you would bathe? How often? Once every three weeks, if you were wealthy, okay? Okay. So anytime you see some movie where there's this valiant knight and he scoops up a girl up onto his horse and they ride off, here's what I think in my mind. She probably stinks. It's gross, all right? It's gross. You didn't own a Bible, by the way. You did not have a Bible in your own possession in the Middle Ages. All the services were in Latin. So they were not in the vernacular like in the early church or in the Reformation. They were in Latin. So you would come into service and the guy would get up there and he would talk in Latin the entire time and you would just kind of wait to take of communion so you could go home and get back to dying of the plague. Okay? So it was not uh, not great in the uh, in the middle ages. In the services there were no chairs. Okay? There were no chairs. So the pastor or the priest or whoever might sit down and he might have a chair, but you had to stand or kneel the entire service. You're welcome. You're welcome. We had chairs before. We got here. we had chairs at Parkway since our inception, right? And so uh, typically you would have to stand or kneel the entire time and men and women would be separate. In some churches, women would be on one side and men would be on the other and other churches, men would be at the front and the women would be in the back but you didn't sit amongst uh, men and women together like we do today, okay? Now, what do you think the literacy rate was in the Middle Ages? It's pretty close. Uh, 90% of men were illiterate and 99% of women were illiterate. So one out of 100 women could read, 10 out of 100 men could read, and, uh, and so not only was the service in Latin, not only did you not have a Bible, but even if you had a Bible, it wouldn't matter because you couldn't read it. You would just do what my son does where he kind of moves his finger across the page and just makes up a story, okay? And so what you have is you have the church teaching these people who are illiterate through images, If you've ever been in like a medieval cathedral, they have beautiful stained glass, they have statues. Why? Because it's a way to take people who are illiterate and teach them stories of the Bible through picture book, through coloring book, okay? So you might not be able to read the story of the prodigal son, but you can come into a service and on the stained glass, there's this son weeping as he walks away from the whores and the money and these kind of things, walking to the father, whatever it is. Or you would come into a service and there would be a statue of uh, Moses or something like that parting the sea. And so it was a way to teach people about the Bible who could not read in their thinking. The, The Reformers would later condemn that. The Middle Ages were not dark, okay? So we have a tendency to think that like no intellectual stimulation was happening in the Middle Ages. That's actually why people from the Enlightenment, they're biased, they call it the Enlightenment, we're so smart called it, pejoratively, the Dark Ages, okay? It's not that it was actually dark. In the Middle Ages, that's where you got the invention of the university, okay? That was invented in the Middle Ages. Oxford and Cambridge and the University of Paris, uh, Chaucer and the Canterbury Tales and guys like Anselm and Aquinas, there is a ton of intellectual flourishing going on in the Middle Ages. The average person didn't have a lot of that, But as far as academia in and of itself, it is one of the high points of human thinking, not one of the low points. So if you think that, you've been corrupted by post-enlightenment thinking into thinking that all the Middle Ages were just kind of a waste, okay? The central part of the worship service was the partaking of the Eucharist in the Mass, okay? In the Mass. Here's what this would look like. The service, you guys would be standing up and the pastor would deliver his sermon, the priest, they call him priest in uh, Roman Catholicism, not pastors, but uh, the priest would deliver his sermon, and it would be off to the side, and at the center of the service would be the table, which they would call an altar. And at the end of the service, mass, by the way, if you hear about Catholics going to mass, mass is the name for the whole church service, which, which uh, has two parts, the preaching of the word and the partaking of communion. At the end of the service, you would come forward, And you would kneel, and there would be a railing between me, the priest, and you, the gross laity, right? Because there needs to be this strong separation between this holy person and just the regular people. So there would be railing. You don't get to come up here. And you would kneel down, and you would open your mouth, and I would put a little wafer on your tongue, and you had to let the wafer dissolve. Who knows why? Because they believed that that wafer was materially, physically, the body of Jesus. And you don't want to chew the Lord, okay? Okay? And so you allow that wafer to dissolve, and you didn't get to partake of the cup of communion. Just the priest would take of communion in both kinds, the wafer and the cup. Why? Because if that's the blood of Jesus, I'm not going to risk any of you guys spilling it. Okay? And so you weren't allowed to partake of that. You had no idea what was going on, and then you went home and farmed for your Lord or lady or whoever. It was not a great existence. Okay? Not a great existence. You had a lot of corruption in the church in the Middle Ages, especially as uh, it got closer to the time of the Reformation. You had priests having kids. Now, just so you know this, priests are not allowed to get married. This is not like a family trade. If your dad was a carpenter, you might be a carpenter. If your dad is a priest, something has gone seriously wrong, okay? You have priests having kids. You have popes having mistresses, etc. and you have, under a guy named Pope Innocent III, the high point of the Roman papacy. Here's what Pope Innocent III said about the the role of the Pope, about his role. Listen to what he says. That the Pope is the successor of Peter, is the vicar of Christ. A vicar is someone who stands in for somebody else, okay? He's the vicar of Christ. He has been established as a mediator between God and man, below God but but beyond man, less than God but more than man, who shall judge all and be judged by no one, Okay? That is the idea of the Pope. Somebody uh, this last uh, couple of weeks tweeted out something pretty funny. He said, kudos to the Pope, who in addition to writing all these different books, is holding down the job of being Christ on earth. Something like that. It's pretty funny. Okay. You had one of the darkest blotches on uh, Christian history in the uh, Crusades. We'll talk about the Crusades eventually if we ever get into uh, church history, but I want to read you a little uh, excerpt from a diary of a crusader with the brutality of the Crusades, Crusaders who were sent into Jerusalem to kill the Muslims. They raped women, they pillaged, they killed not only Muslims but Jews as well, they even resorted to cannibalism. Listen to this, some of our men cut off the heads of their enemies, others shot them with arrows so that they fell from the towers. Others tortured them longer by casting them into the flames. It was necessary to pick one's way over the bodies of men and horses, but these were small matters compared to what happened at the Temple of Solomon where men rode in blood up to their knees and bridle reins. Indeed, it was just and splendid judgment of God that this place should be filled with the blood of the unbelievers since it had suffered so long from their blasphemies, okay? So you have at this time, again, no separation of church and state, and by the way, to actually say something positive about the Crusades, the state would have had a right to stop the Muslim invasion. So Muslims were coming in, killing people, taking cities. Had the state said, we're gonna stop them for our own protection, that would have been just war. The problem is, is that they did jihad. It was, you can now go kill them because they're non-believers, and this is righteous and a service to God. And so it ends up being a, a huge uh, kind of ink stain on church history. Well, let's briefly talk about the Reformed Church, what happens in the Reformation. A lot of things happen. One, the Bible is translated into the vernacular. You now get a chance not only to own your own Bible, which you have not had that chance throughout church history, but you get to hear services in German or English or Dutch or French or whatever language that you speak. You have services in the vernacular, okay? The preaching of the Bible is moved center stage instead of off to the side. So in most churches, the pastor would preach off to the side and the central element of worship was communion. Notice in Protestant churches where we do the preaching. We do it front and center because the most important part of the service is the preaching of the word, okay? You don't get anything from the sacraments that are not already contained in the word. The sacraments confirm and encourage you in those things, but the preaching of the word is central in Protestantism, okay? All statues are gotten rid of and condemned as idolatrous. You have what's called the iconoclast controversy, where a bunch of fired up Protestants break into Catholic churches and start smashing all their windows and start smashing all of their idols. Sounds like it would have been a lot of fun if you didn't get killed for doing it, okay? Personal Bible study is now emphasized. One of the things that Martin Luther said is that his goal, if he would be able to translate the New Testament, is that a German plowboy, meaning a kid behind a plow, would know his Bible better than the Pope would hold more authorities than councils and, uh, uh, and church leaders. That was one of his hopes. So personal Bible studies emphasize. Everyone should have a Bible. Everyone should be studying it all the time, okay? There are no more priests in Protestantism. Why? There are only pastors because all Christians are priests. You and I have the same status before God, period, Okay? I have a different vocation, but I do not have more closeness to God. Most of you in here are holier than me anyway, and so you are priest. I hereby ordain you all as priests, okay? Men and women, priest and priestesses, there is no more this guy you have to go through before you offer a sacrifice because Christ is the only priest. Christ is the only high priest, this mediator. The rest of us are all now priests. We are, uh, so you have pastors, but they are not some sort of like, I don't have special priest powers. Regular people can baptize. Regular people can pass out communion. Regular people can evangelize. Regular people can pray, okay? We don't have priest powers that you don't have. We're all priests in, uh, in Christ, okay? You would now participate in congregational singing. Why is it that we all sing together? We don't just have a choir come up and sing while we're quiet. We don't have monks come up with Gregorian chant while we listen to professional singers sing. We don't just have Tim perform and like kick over his music stand and do all this while we're watching. We sing with him right, there's congregational singing, all the people of God should worship God. Communion was now allowed in both kinds. The reformers said you've gotta give the laity the cup as well, not just the bread, but also the cup, okay? Now, in Roman Catholic theology, when you partake of the wafer, you're partaking of the whole Christ, so you're getting body and blood regardless. But the Reformers said there is something important about making sure there's not this distinction between priest and laity and in allowing people to partake of the cup and the bread. So you've got communion taken in both kinds in the Reformation. There was an emphasis in personal saving faith in Christ. Okay? This is one of the things that it means to be evangelical. We love the evangel, the evangelion, the gospel. Okay? And so there's this idea that every Christian should have personal faith in Christ. You are not saved by the faith of the church. You are not just baptized as an infant and now you experience regeneration and hopefully you walk in obedience later. You have to have a personal saving relationship with Christ or you're not a Christian, okay? And most importantly for me, clergy could now be married, okay? priests were not allowed to be married. That led to a lot of problems. One of the things the Apostle Paul will say is that one of the the false teachings that people will give is uh, denying people to get married. And uh, what, uh, what you have now is you have the clergy being married. So you have Martin Luther, who's a former monk who took a vow of celibacy, and his wife, Catherine von Bora, who's a former nun who had to be smuggled out of her convent in a fish barrel. Again, hygiene is gross back in this day. And they forsake their vows of celibacy, and they get married. A monk marries a nun, and that's the Reformation couple. That's the hot new Hollywood couple, okay? Luther and, uh, and Catherine. Martin Luther's got a great quote where he says, there's a lot to get used to in the first year of marriage. One wakes up in the morning to find a pair of pigtails on the pillow, which were not there before, okay? He wakes up, he's used to being a monk, and all of a sudden, there's a lady, right? And so that's what he is, uh, that's what he's saying, okay? Lastly, let's talk about the modern church and then a few things to consider. The modern church is probably my least favorite time in church history, to be honest with you. I feel like if Christ would come back right after the Reformation, that would been, been the best. Uh, things have a tendency to kind of drift after that. So here's some things you see in the modern church. You do see a few good things. You see a huge emphasis on missions, okay? 1750 and after, you have a huge emphasis on missions. So now you have Christians not just being Christians in their communities, but going to Africa, going to Asia, going to uh, India, going to South America. So it is the age of missions, that is a good thing okay? But you also have a lot of bad things. You have the fracturing of the church into many denominations, okay? When the Reformation starts, those guys are basically all on the same page, and then they start to break away into a few denominations, Lutheranism and the Reformed Church, okay? And then after that, you start to get Anglicanism and Methodism and Baptist and whatever, and the, 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 the spectrum just continues to expand, and we start splitting not over major issues but over really minor issues, and so you get a lot of fracturing of the church, You see the rise of Arminianism and semi-Pelagianism, this idea that you can somehow make this decision for Christ first, despite the fact that the Bible says you're completely dead, that you don't believe salvation is all of God's grace. It's gotta be a little bit of you. That idea, which has very much corrupted the American church is a result of the modern church. You get the invention of a few movements, dispensationalism in the mid-1800s. We don't have time to explain what all these are, but uh, feel free to, to text a question. You get the invention of the charismatic movement and some of the anti-intellectualism that goes along with that. Thankfully, in uh, the 1960s, you have what is known as post-Vatican II, which is this meeting of the Catholic Church. And finally, after condemning us for 500 years, the Catholic Church accepts us back as separated brethren. We've made it. We've made it, guys. So finally, uh, after all this time, and the, the Roman Catholic Church said that Greek Orthodoxy and Protestants, as long as they're Orthodox our fellow believers, okay? So there's more unity today amongst Christians than there was, um, yeah, after that. And then lastly, the separation of church and state really begins to flourish in the modern era. Now, that was, uh, that's a new idea, okay? The, the Catholic church and the state have always worked hand in hand. Then at the Reformation, you still had a state church, okay? So Calvin's church was the show in town in Geneva, in uh, Germany, you had to be part of the official Lutheran church in certain territories or Catholic in other. Uh, the Church of England, Anglicanism, means the church that belongs to England. It's a state church. So when the founders of America talked about there being a separation of church and state, this was not the idea that you keep religion out of the public sphere. They didn't do that. They used to host services in the Capitol building. The idea was that there would, America wouldn't have a state church, okay? That the government couldn't say, this is our official American church like uh, they had in, uh, in England. Okay, a few things to consider, and then I'll have Jeff come up here. The first is this. Do you love the church? Do you love Christ's bride? Or do you just think that you can love Christ but not be heavily involved in being a member of his body? Okay? Your love for the church is linked to your love for Christ. If you say, I really love Jesus, but I don't care much about the church. I don't care much about the bride. I'm not involved. I'm not plugged in. There's a, there's a bigger spiritual deficiency going on. Okay? We will give you some great quotes. When the gospel flourishes in the church, everything flourishes with it, Martin Luther. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. St. Augustine, it is clear that one who is not among the members of Christ, the church, cannot possess Christian salvation. Richard Hooker, the church is in Christ as Eve was in Adam. Eve was taken out of Adam's side, and that was his bride. From Jesus' wounded side comes the church, the one that he loves, okay? Number two, another thing to consider. Usually, when you see the word church in the Bible, you should translate that to one of two ways, in one of two ways, assembly or Christians, okay? So I gave you a bunch of things church can mean. You really only have to remember two. When you read the word church in the New Testament, you need to think one of two things. You either need need to think Christians generally, Christ died for the church, or you need to think a local assembly, and you need to make sure that those don't get confused, okay? So if I say that that Dave or Dr. Steve is an elder of the church, I don't mean they're an apostle of the Christian church all over the world. I mean that they're over a local church, right? Parkway, whatever it might be. So make sure you don't get those two confused. You hear a lot of that when Christians fight each other saying, the church should be like this or the church should be like that, and they confuse. Are you meaning the universal church, Christians, or are you meaning a local body of Christians? Okay? Number three, this is a big one, Christ's Bride is broken. Don't be surprised when Christians or churches let you down. Okay? So listen to me. Christ will never let you down. He will never leave you nor forsake you, but His bride will wound you a lot. Okay? All churches are imperfect. We will let you down at Parkway. Christians will let you down. Your community groups will let you down. There are things you'll be frustrated about, but that doesn't mean you get to throw out the baby with the bathwater. You have to love Christ's church. She is imperfect. But help be an agent of change, help be an encourager, help be a unifier, help be someone who pours into and loves the church, okay? The church is great, but the church consists of people. The church is great, and and then you add people, and the church becomes broken because people are broken, okay? And so that's that's us, that's us. So just note that's normal. If a church is supposed to do 10 things well, no church will do all 10 really well, they might do six well. So you always have to ask yourself, what is the most important six? What is the most important things that the church is to be doing? So just know, you will let us down and we will let you down, and that's okay. We can still be friends and brothers in Christ. Number four, things the church has always valued, okay? There's been a lot of corruption. There's been a lot of drift. There's been good things and bad things throughout church history. There are three things that the church has clung on to, cling, clinged on, has held on to throughout our history, okay? One, Trinitarianism. If you do not hold to the historic view of the Trinity, not that you say you believe the Trinity with your mouth, but you believe a different thing. If you do not hold to the historic view of the Trinity, you are not a Christian. This is why Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and the Christian Science Movement and all these kind of things are cults, okay? They're not denominations. They're cults. They deny everything we hold sacred, okay? And I can't say it stronger than that. You have to be Trinitarian to be a Christian. The next thing the church has always valued is anti-Pelagianism. You guys remember a guy named Pelagius? Yes, you're learning, You're learning. Even if it's like Pavlov's dogs, you're learning. Okay. So who is Pelagius? Somebody give me a summary. Somebody say something? Oh, yeah, confident until I call on you. Okay. Yes, Pelagius was a heretic who thought that people were not born dead in their sin, but that they were born morally neutral, and that you could, salvation was something that you earned. God was gracious in giving you the law. It's your job now to keep it. That's what Pelagius thought grace was, the law okay? And uh, he was condemned as a heretic. Now, you need to know all of Christian history for true Christians have condemned Pelagius, even in Roman Catholicism. They will say that you are saved by Christ's work alone. Now, in Catholicism, they'll say you have to do these rituals to get it. It's a little different, but they're not technically Pelagian. Pelagianism is where you think that in addition to Christ's work, you contribute some to your salvation, okay? That's not true. The church has always rejected that. And then lastly, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That has always been central to what the church has valued. Last question. And Jeff, if you want to make your way up here. What questions mentioned above are you excited to learn about as we begin our study in ecclesiology? So my hope again in this lesson, we didn't really get into the topics. This was just meant to be an introduction to uh, the idea of the church, just meant to whet your whistle or appetite or sword or whatever uh, the phrase is. Uh, so uh, anyway, what are you excited to learn about? I mean, I don't know if you've gotten our syllabus that we handed out earlier, but uh, we're excited to have you guys here. I think that we'll learn a lot. I think it'll be a lot of fun. So Jeff Ashley, if you'll come up here and, uh, and help uh, us think through some questions related to church stuff that you guys have texted in, we are so technologically savvy. We're not Amish here at Parkway, in case you were wondering, despite the beards, uh, despite some of the beards. Okay.
1: Um, okay. Great. Uh, so first question that we got, we got about uh, four or five. We probably won't get to all of them, but the first one was, what are your thoughts on moving away from uh, large churches, and uh, there seems to be a kind of a cultural uh, movement towards micro churches or house churches or something uh, like that. So I'll give a few thoughts and then turn it over to you. So I think that's two different questions. Uh, it was kind of phrased as one. And uh, so it's kind of what do you think about large churches? And then what do you think about house churches? And uh, so I'll give a few thoughts and then turn it over uh, to Zach. And so I, I think that, uh, that both... Uh, the larger your church is, and the smaller your church is, uh, there are certain dangers that uh, accompany uh, that. And uh, and so, thinking about it from the perspective of like a mega church, there are certain dangers. Now, I was saved in a mega church. I cut my teeth in ministry at a mega church, and so I've served in a mega 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 church, mega 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 church. I didn't mean to to stutter, oh. uh, but it was that big. So uh, uh, so I have served there. Have a a deep appreciation for them. I don't think that uh, they are. Uh, all sellouts or anything like that. Don't, please don't hear that. Uh, but there are some dangers that accompany that uh, model, including that it kind of allows people to remain, remain on the fringes, as if that is really what it means to be a part of the church. I simply go to this church. No one knows my name. I don't know anybody else. Nobody has a relationship with me, whatever it might be. Related to that, uh, the shepherds don't tend to know the sheep. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, you could be a member of a church for 10 years, 15 years, whatever it might be, and you don't actually know any of the leadership. And they don't know you, they don't know your struggles, they don't know your story, they don't know uh, any of those sorts of things. Uh, that there tends to be an emphasis on conversion and, uh, and not discipleship. There tends to be an emphasis on pragmatism and not actually just faithfulness to God's word. Uh, there tends to be a cult of personality. Typically, megachurches are built around a personality. And, uh, and then they, uh, yeah, so those are a number of things. Again, don't hear me say all megachurches are bad or anything like that. I'm just saying those are some dangers that you have to watch out for. On the other end of the spectrum, when it comes to house churches, um, then, uh, then you have some dangers that accompany that as well. They tend to be somewhat insular. They, they tend to not be doing as much evangelism and, and, uh, and missions and those sorts of things. Uh, they typically don't have leadership within the church. They want to make everything so flat where there's not pastors, there's not elders, there's not deacons, whatever it might be, because there's only ten members or five members or whatever it might be. There's typically no church discipline and uh, in a lot of these house churches really it's just i'm taking my biological family and i'm calling it the church uh, which doesn't actually force us to uh to experience gospel unity it doesn't really force us to lay down our preferences and our rights and those sorts of things so those are just a few of my own thoughts you have anything to to add
0: yes so just two quick summaries so how big is too big of a church? And it's where people cannot be adequately discipled. So there's not a number. So we don't want to get up and say if your church is this big, you're sinning. That's not true. The, your church is too big if people are not adequately being discipled. So how big should you be? It depends a lot on your resources, how many pastors you have, how the way your church is set up. And so just don't go to a church that has outgrown their ability to disciple. That's a, that's the easiest way to think of a big church. And then, like Jeff said, house churches are fine, but they have to meet all the definitions of a church. I've met people before and they say, We're meeting in house churches. And I say, Tell me what that looks like. And they say, Well, we meet in our homes, but we still come together with other homes to to participate in worship on Sundays. Great, go for it. I've met others and I say, What's your house church like? And they're like, Well, it's me and a couple friends and we meet together and study the Bible. And I say, Okay, do you have elders? Are you doing missions? Are you doing baptism? Are you doing communion? Are you doing discipline? Then you're not a church. You're just Christians gathering for Bible study. And so, yes, you can be a house church, but you have to do all the elements of church if you're going to do that. So, yeah,
1: yeah that's that's great. That was a, a secondary question. What is the ideal size or membership of a church? And so, the answer is uh, large enough to be faithful, to accomplish the mission, to do everything that a church is supposed to do. Not so large that you neglect uh, any of those things. So, next question: Should there be a universal head of the uh, the church?
0: There is a universal head of the church, and his name is Jesus, and that should be the only head of the church, okay? This is one of the things that the, uh, the Puritans, uh, okay, so in, after the Reformation in England, you have the establishment of the Church of England, and one of the concerns with that is that the, the, the king or queen, in this case the queen, is considered the leader head of the church, And so a lot of Puritans were uncomfortable with that. That's one of the reasons they're called Puritans. They wanted to purify the church from some of these Catholic and Anglican elements. Uh, They were uncomfortable with that. Now, that's not what the Anglicans mean by that. They don't mean that the the queen is up there with Jesus. But uh, yeah, I I don't think there should be, the the one universal head of the church is Christ. And then Christ has given the apostles and prophets, those who wrote the scripture, uh, his word and his authority, and that we have in the Bible. And then all local elders sit underneath Christ and his word. And that's the only way I believe it should be, but. You might have a different view. Uh, yeah,
1: I consider Catholic myself Jeff, the head of the church. No. Yes. Uh,
0: it's in his signature line. If you've ever gotten an email from Jeff, it's Pope. Jeff Ashley, pastor okay. slash the head of the church. It's yes. really weird. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, we will.
1: We will. We'll talk about uh, polity. We'll talk, talk about church governance. We'll talk about those kind of things uh, in a few weeks. And so, rather than give a uh, short sound bite now, I think it'd be better just to go ahead and teach that extensively. Then. So, next question. Uh, you mentioned that all the apostles are dead. So what do you think of church leaders who call themselves uh, apostles today? So I'll start and then turn it over to you. So sure. um, you have to understand, there, there are two, d- any word gets its meaning from its context. And so uh, are there apostles today? It all depends on what do you mean by an apostle. And, uh, and so typically what people will talk about is capital A apostles and lowercase apostles. The word apostle just means one who is sent. That's kind of the, uh, the, the meaning there as, uh, as you'll see kind of the root post there, like a post office is a sending of a message. And so an apostle is just simply a messenger, one who is sent out as a messenger. So are there lowercase apostles, that is those who are sent out as missionaries, those who are sent out as church planters? Absolutely. Typically, when you meet someone and in their signature line on their email, they have apostle. That's not what they mean. It's not typically this sort of a humble um, uh, sort of description of their job. It's more a title that they're using. They mean capital A apostle. They mean that they have some sort of uh, authority over uh, multiple churches. That type of apostle does not exist today. Uh, In fact, according to the New Testament, there were uh, specific requirements in order to be an apostle that included that you had to have been a witness to the resurrected Christ. You had to be a witness to his uh, crucifixion, to his resurrection. You had to be personally commissioned by him. So unless you have actually seen the resurrected Jesus, who sits at the right hand of the Father, and unless you have actually been personally commissioned by him, now some of the, the people who claim to be apostles might very well claim that they have seen Jesus, and they have been commissioned by him, but I would say they have not. Uh, That's why Paul says that I am the least of the apostles and one who is as untimely born. In other words, I don't kind of meet some of the other requirements. I wasn't a witness to Jesus' uh, crucifixion. And so, uh, no, I do not believe, we do not believe here at Parkway that there are any capital A apostles, but there are people who are sent out, people who have particular giftings of church planting and evangelism and missions and so forth. Anything to add to that?
0: Yes, if somebody says... I'm the president. And I say, I'm sorry, do you mean the president of the United States or you mean like of your company? Oh, of my company. Okay, well, that's fine. Don't say it like that then because it's weird, right? Uh, and so that's, there's a tendency. What's interesting about the Apostle Paul, when Paul talks about his apostleship, even though he's a real apostle, he's humble. I don't deserve to be an apostle. I'm the least of these. So when people use that title to exalt themselves, that's a mark that something is off. Right? The closer you are to God, the more humble you are, the more you realize how sinful you are, the more you realize how off you are, not the greater that you think that you are. So yes, avoid, uh, not avoid, go get coffee with those who claim to be an apostle and encourage them in the Scriptures. So.
1: Last question. So there's a number of ways that you could uh, probably take this, but what, uh, kind of what is the, the reference marker? How do we kind of uh, define or distinguish the transition from the early church to the medieval church? What are some of the events or what's what's the, the technical definition of when that transition takes place?
0: Yeah, so, you know, history is always kind of a scale. It's kind of a slide. You have very few places in history where it's just a sharp break. And so, uh, Augustine in the uh, 400s-ish is kind of the high point of the, uh, the early church, St. Augustine. After that, the church uh, starts to take on these more catholicy more i would say corrupting elements from about the year 500 to 1500 so it's a big slide 500s pretty pure when the when the reformers quote people in early, the early church, they'll quote people in the 500s, 600s, year 1000, those kind of things. It's really in the year 1000 to 500 where you start to get the exaltation of transubstantiation, that Christ physically becomes the elements that you're eating in communion. That's where you start to get the exoneration or the uh, exaltation of Mary. That's where you have more of an emphasis on purgatory. That's when you start to get this idea, and this was a popular phrase in the Middle Ages, that, uh, that God does not deny grace to him who does what is in him. So you've gotta do your best. And then grace is that God gives you the extra. The reformers are gonna say, no, God gives you all of it. You don't do your best and then God helps you. How do you know you've done your best? Couldn't you always pray more? Couldn't you always help the poor more? How can you do your best if you're dead in sin? And so it's, it's a slide, but the, 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 the yeah. So 1500, 1400, that's gonna show kind of the high mark of uh, the Catholic church in the negative sense. Uh, from 1200 to 1500, that's a really Bad time in church history, from 800 to 1200, not so great. From 500 to 800, not that bad. So it just depends. So yeah, that's good. That's it. Okay, you want to pray for us? Sure. Uh,
1: Father, we thank you for uh, for your word. We thank you for uh, your church, and uh, and just confess that uh, we want to be faithful, Lord, as you have called us to be the body and bride. Uh, of Christ, and that you have given us this gift for our good and for our uh, flourishing and for your glory. And so, would you help us, Lord? Would you help us? Would you use this uh, next few months as we consider these topics? Would you use it to expose in our own hearts where uh, we might not love your church, we might not treasure your church as we should, we might not think of it rightly, we might not think of church governance, or leadership, or membership, or communion, or baptism, or whatever it might be. We might not think of it rightly, and so pray that you would, in your grace, that you would help us to see more clearly that we might uh, be more faithful to you, and so we're grateful that our, our hope is ultimately found in your faithfulness to us, and because you're faithful, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.